In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins what is popularly called the Sermon on the Mount. And it has proven contentious for one primary reason. What Jesus says is completely bonkers. That is why it has proven contentious for years. Blessed are the poor. Really? Who considers poverty a blessing? Those who mourn? Really? Really? Who has a fun time mourning? Peacemakers? We shot those people. Right? Absolutely crazy. Do not be angry at people. Do not lust. Make no vows. Turn the other cheek. Love my enemy. He wants to hurt me. Can't love him. Right? For thousands of years, these words have been said and read and heard. And for thousands of years, people have given lip service to them. Yeah, yep. Jesus said that. Yep. Yeah, I probably should do that. But I won't. And why not? Well, because it's completely nuts according to the ways everybody seems to think. And, you know, most people are not that honest about it. They say, yeah, I should do it, but they don't do it. Some people have been honest enough to say, you know what, this is crazy. This is the way things will be when Jesus comes in his kingdom. And it's believed to be in the future. Or he didn't really mean for us to do any of that stuff. You know, uh, well, maybe there's one random passage we can just kind of brush it aside. But here's the thing. Jesus and the apostles consistently exhort Christians toward humility, toward service, toward suffering, and other things that run against the grain of conventional wisdom. I mean, Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 39, Jesus says, whoever doesn't, you have to maybe hate your father and mother, and then your, your enemies are going to be the members of your own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. When told his parent, mom and his siblings were looking for him, and in Matthew 12, he's turned on, who is my mother and my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of the father. So he reorients the family toward the believers in Christ and not uh, the family unit which has sustained life since civilization. Uh, Matthew 20, 25 through 28, he says, Hey, you see it, how it works in the world. You see how the Gentiles do things, uh, lording it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever be great among you must be your servant. Whoever be first must be your slave. And Paul will take that and run with it. In Romans 6, 14-23, we've been set free from being slaves of sin to become slaves of righteousness. In Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21, Paul glories in that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ in him, because he has been crucified with Christ. We take that so flippantly, but that means, I suffered an awful, horrible, public, humiliating, shameful form of death in Christ. Yay? That sounds crazy. In Galatians 5, 17 through 24, the fruit of the Spirit, these good characteristics, were to manifest. Yes, absolutely. Most people get on board with that, but to everyone? In every circumstance? In Philippians chapter 2, the idea that we are to serve all people in Christ and to maintain humility. And in 1 Peter, so much of what Peter is writing there is to encourage Christians to stand firm in doing good even when they're getting persecuted for it. In Revelation 12 through 15, that we overcome the forces of evil through suffering evil. 
we could go and spend a lot of time on other passages, but these show that Jesus and the apostles are preparing the Christian to live in ways completely inconsistent with the lives of those around them. And notice that on a lot of these things I've just mentioned have been flashpoints of controversy throughout time because they stand against culture. Not just America 2017, but throughout time. And that's why I think it's good for us to consider the folly, if you will, of the Christian life. We looked at the folly of the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1. We've seen how uh, the res- if the cross is, is considered foolish of the world, then the resurrection that supports all that is definitely foolish. And I'd like to suggest that the life that Christians are called to lead, therefore, is going to be but folly to the world. And I think we can see that when we consider the ways of the world. Think about it for a second. How does the world operate? Sure, people fear pain, suffering, corruption, and death. Okay? People fight against those. But they're considered inevitable. They're givens. You're going to die. You're going to suffer. If you ain't suffering, because others are suffering, so you don't have to. Right? In the face of the corruption of the universe, in the face of all the problems we see, uh, how have people adapted? Well, there's been these rules. A lot of time these rules are unstated, but they're rules. They exist. We call it worldly wisdom. The way things are. That's just how things are. How many times have you heard that or thought that? Well, that's just the way it goes. That's just how it is. That's this worldly wisdom. And they follow from the certainty of death and the desire to escape pain and difficulty. And so they're the best, quote-unquote, ways of trying to make sense of this absurd life that we live under the sun in ways that are independent of the things that God has promised. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15.32, when Paul talks about this whole thing about the resurrection, if there's no resurrection, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, Because, after all, if we're just going to die, we might as well live it up, right? You only live once. Uh, Might makes right. Again, I don't care what everybody tells you. That's the way it goes. You have the power. You get to do what you want. The desire is to seek and avoid pain and suffering at all costs. Uh, You've got to get as much stuff for yourself and your people as you can. You need to always maintain or project strength at all costs. You've got to be strong. Be strong. Got to be strong. Got to look strong. Got to get out there. Don't be a sissy. Don't be a sissy. The winners write the history. And if you want to be heard, you got to get yourself out there, right? You got to be loud, proud, tell everybody what you think. Right? You want to get out there. That's how it works. And these guidelines have been enshrined as the hidden, the hid- wisdom, the hidden or not so hidden ways that our world works. And it's true in nations, it's true at work, it's true in culture, it's even true in the family. It's true in almost every single area of life, or at least believed to be true. And it is a kind of wisdom. And what's interesting is James identifies it as a kind of wisdom in James chapter 3. But he calls it the worldly, unspiritual, or demonic form of wisdom, the ways of this world. And he says it's the manifestation of selfish ambition and jealousy. And if you think about it, our sinfulness and the 
world and its sinfulness drive us in those two directions relentlessly. Selfish ambition. Because if I'm not getting ahead, you're getting ahead at my expense. And that's awful, so I need to keep getting ahead. I need, why do you think we, who's number one in this world? Right? I'm number one. And I'm number one because I'm the priority. And therefore, I'm going to make sure you know I'm the priority because I'm going to try to get ahead of you. And I'm going to get stuff. And along with that, when it's all about getting ahead and getting stuff, now all of a sudden my relationships are all going to be given great difficulty because I'm convinced that you want the stuff I have or I want the stuff you have. And I know you want the stuff I have because if I were you and you, I saw what I had, then I would definitely want to have what I had. Right? That's just how the world works. And so you see that in so many people. You see this in so much of the world. And it's just the way it is. That jerk in the office, just the way it is. Right? That person who never shuts up online and gets more credibility... Or on television. That's just the way it is. That's how it goes. That's how things work. And this is what drives your country. It's what drives your culture. It's what drives your work, your family, and to an unhealthy degree, yourself. Now, you're like, well, I, I, I've transcended all that. I don't really have these problems. Maybe what's really going on there is that you're just so wealthy and decadent that you're not even noticing how much this is a part of your life. Let's do a thought exercise. Uh, there's a big shaky shake tomorrow and all your stuff is gone. Now how are you approaching everything and everybody? Yeah, yeah, see it's still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. You've just been able to medicate yourself with stuff to think that you've gotten beyond that when you really haven't. That's the way the world works works. And all of us are intrinsically oriented in this way of thinking because we are of the world at some point and we imbibe the world's value. That's why Paul will talk about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we were by nature children of wrath before we were saved in Christ. Titus 3, hating one another and hating in turn. That's the way we are outside of Christ. That's the way we are in the world. This constant rat race means that Either I am benefiting at your expense or you're benefiting at my expense. And I need to collect as much as I can because my time on earth is short and I need to provide for myself and my family. I need to avoid pain and enjoy what I can. All of that is worldly wisdom. That's what drives all of this. And it's this world that Jesus came to redeem and overcome in his death and resurrection. This is the world we're going to be called to be part of the resistance against if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. Romans 12, 2, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and other passages. And if we look in James 3, we can see the way it's going to work, because James tells you real, heavenly wisdom. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. These are things that are godly. And these are things we see in Jesus. We know Jesus is pure and full of good fruit. He went about doing good. That was the universal confession about him in Acts 10 and verse 38. He is peaceable. He bore the hostility in himself to reconcile people to God and to one another in Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 18. And of course, in his great invitation, come ye who are heavy laden, 
I will give you rest. I am gentle and pure and merciful. We see that in Jesus. And we know that in judgment, God is no respecter of persons in Romans 2 and verse 16. Now, everything that we're going to say about the Christian life is going to be consistent with that divine wisdom. You think about Jesus' Beatitudes and his commandments in Matthew 5. It goes along with being pure, peaceable, gentle, merciful. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, that stuff, that's all good fruit, good stuff in Galatians 5, 23-24. You think about if you're going to really live peaceably, if you're really going to be gentle, you're going to suffer, right? Because what, what happens in the world to gentle people? They get steamrolled, right? That's how it happens. You're going to suffer. It's going to cost you. That is the calling to which we've been called. Now, let's turn the tables a little bit. We think that's all great, right? We're Christians. We know that's all great. How does it look to the world? I think stupid. There you go. Right there. <laughs> that's the testimony. It's stupid, right? Absolutely. It's dumb. It's foolishness. And the world really doesn't want much to do with it. Like, purity, gentleness, impartiality. No. No. We want the people who we don't like to be impartial, right? We want the, the other people to be impartial while we stay saturated in our partiality. That's how that works, right? And there's a lip service of pretense to others, you know, peace. Are you going to find people out there who say, I'm against peace? But are they willing to do the things that lead to peace? They want costless peace, which is no peace at all. Say so with reason. People want to be open to reason, right? But if you're open to reason, that means that you have to sit in the discomfort that you might be wrong and somebody else might be right and you might be in a disadvantaged position. And who wants to do that? That's awful. Okay? Sincerity as well. We want everybody else to be sincere, but we want to have our cloaked feelings and judgment and everything else, right? Again, that's the way everything works. Hey, I don't want to overstate it. As Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Luke 6, everybody loves people, right? Everybody loves somebody. Everybody's got a mother. Most people love them. Right? There's some good in everybody. But when it comes to all the good we can talk about, like in the fruit of the Spirit, it will only go so far. So I love that in Galatians 5.24. Against such things there is no law. There's no legislation against love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, mercy, self-control. Right? But when the world sees how Jesus expects you to live according to those values, that's crazy. It's good to have a little bit of love, but love your enemies... Come on. It's good to want a peace, but to suffer and die, to you know, bring people together, that's ridiculous. Right? A little bit of self-control is good. You probably shouldn't eat as much as you're eating here and there. But you know, if you notice that our entire economy is driven on the premise that you're not going to have any self-control? If you have self-control, nobody makes money. And that's bad, right? It's the way it is here in the world. And we think about like love and patience and things. We're supposed to really love the people who are close to us, but the further you get from somebody, the less you're expected to care for them. And that's not the way it's supposed to be in Christ, because it's not an issue of worth in terms of receiving, because we are all in the same boat, and God loves us all. And really, nothing has ever been as scandalous to the world as God coming in the flesh as Jesus of Nazareth, humbly serving, doing good, suffering and dying, and being raised again. So if there was nothing more scandalous and dumb to the world as Jesus and his life, 
how will living the Christian life look to that same world? Will it look any less foolish or any less scandalous? No, it's going to be crazy. Divine wisdom is great, but the world has not known God through knowledge or wisdom. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. The world did not know God through wisdom. Therefore, if the world did not know God through wisdom, you're not going to know God through the wisdom of this world. It's going to be something different. If we're going to follow Jesus and serve him, we're going to have to patternalize after what everybody in the world is going to say is complete, ludicrous, stupid, bonkers junk. But to us it is the power of God and the way of salvation. Now, very clear about the warnings that we've been given. The Christian life is not compatible with the ways of the world, number one. We've been warned about that. And we've also been warned that the world will not be happy with our living in ways that are not according to its pattern. We've gotten that all the time. Jesus warned about that in Matthew 10, 34-39. We have that in John 15, 18, and 19. The, the, if the world hated me, the world's going to hate you. John 16, 33, you will have tribulation in the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, Philippians 3, 18 through 21, the same thing. And Ephesians 5, the need to expose the works of darkness. James, in James 4, 1 through 4, right after the passage we've been reading, uh, he warned, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, chapter 4. Uh, people are going to think it crazy and strange that you do not follow in their same pattern of uh, debauchery and riot. Uh, it's going to, don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you. And in John, 1 John 2, 15-17, to not to love the world or the things in the world, uh, chapter 4, that the world hears those who are against us because they are of the world. Uh, but he who is with us is greater than he who is in the world. That's the assurance. And also Revelation 13-15. through 15. Not for nothing in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is Satan called the God of this world who has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so they will not see. That the world, caught up in its own systems, is empowered by the forces of darkness in the spiritual places in Ephesians 6.12 and so vividly described in imagery in Revelation 13. The worldly wisdom is what makes these systems go. The worldly wisdom is what powers these systems. That's just how it's done here, i.e., this is how it works in the world system. That, you can't do that here, i.e., this doesn't go along with the way this system works. You've got to understand what that code means. You can't follow Jesus here would be the message of the world. You can't do those kind of things here. And that's something very important to notice. Because, you know, we're sitting here at church, we all look nice, we come together Sunday morning, we're all together, it's great. You know, yeah, we can follow Jesus, yeah. But you know, once you walk out the door, you've got that voice in your head, don't you? I can't do that. It's going to lead to X, Y, and Z. Well, whose voice is that? That's the voice of the worldly powers and principalities, the way things are done here. It's crazy, it'll never work, right? This whole Jesus thing. 
just going to get you hurt. Means you're going to lose your job, maybe. Could even get you killed. You know, we just got to know better. We got to know better, right? We know how, got to know how to play the game. Follow the rules. Whose game? Whose rules? And what's the end of that? Do you think Jesus was somehow ignorant of the way the world worked? Do you think Jesus was somehow ignorant that you can't do those kind of things here? He came into the world to do those kind of things. He got laughed at, yelled at, beaten, and killed for it. And we believe that is the hope of our salvation. How can we then turn and say back to the world, okay, you're right. We can't do that here. It's not the kind of life we're going to live. We're just going to do what you say. How can we say, Jesus is Lord, but I'm going to keep doing all the things in the world and the way the world works. going to just follow the rat race, do it all, you know, just do what my generation four have done, just kind of grind one out. Nope. So here's the thing. Uh, there's this funny statement that you've heard, you know, if everything's coming at you, you might need to change direction, right? We use that in terms of problems in life. When we think, though, if everything's going our way, everything is great. But Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because that's what they said to the false prophets. If life is going a bit too easy for us, if we're not receiving opposition in the world, if our lifestyle doesn't seem crazy to people, it means that we're not living according to God's values. Straight up. We can say that without any fear of contradiction. Because we know from all these scriptures we've read and many more that the ways of Christ are foolishness of the world and you are going to be seen for what it means to be in the resistance. Now, resistance is such a big term. Resist, right? Resistance. Do you know what happens to the resistance? What happens to resistance? They call in the tanks, right? They call in the fire hoses. They call in the National Guard. Why? Because that's not how we do things here. Might makes right. So when you are going to sign up for the resistance, I know we love to think we're Star Wars, right? We're part of the resistance. Eh? We're going to blow up the Death Star. You ain't blowing up the Death Star. The Death Star is going to get you, but then God's going to crush the Death Star, okay? That's how this works. We want to be the heroes of the story. That's part of the way of the world. We justify our own mortality by being the hero. We aren't the hero. God is the hero in Christ. The Christian life is going to be foolishness because we are doing things to the extremes that Jesus took them. And the only way you make sense of that is in Jesus. You know, love is great. Who's going to argue about love? Love is great, right? We all love love. But the idea that I'm supposed to do good even to those who hate me and to do good to people who will not do good to me is bonkers going to the world. And you will never justify that in the world's logic because there's no logic to it according to the world. It only makes sense when you realize that God loved me when I was unlovable in Christ, Romans 5. And I'm supposed to follow him. Same with seeking peace. We all need to know to be patient, right? But how long can you go before you revile or respond in kind? Jesus went as far as the cross and still didn't. And that's what we're called to. Does it make any worldly sense at all? No, and it never will. You'll never read about that in the self-help section of the bookstore or on Amazon. 
because this all goes beyond anything any self-help person, guru, can help you with. Because uh, if you notice, Jesus is the ultimate guru here, so to speak, and uh, self-help was not really much a part of it. It was more self-suffering, <laughs> self-deprivation, self-giving. And then all of a sudden, you are much better as a person in Christ. The world's fine with all your moderated virtues, but excessive virtue gets you killed. But what does Jesus call us to? Excessive virtue. You'll never get to godly righteousness except by looking at what God has done in Jesus. But of all things, and most fundamentally, the Christian life is foolishness of the world because it doesn't share the same goals. What do people want in life? They want security and resources for themselves and their tribe, their own aggrandizement, even if, and especially often if, it comes to the expense of others. Everybody wants the mansion, the hills, and look down at all the proletariat. That's what people are motivated by. That's what they want. But in Christ, we're supposed to want to partake of the riches of God's grace, which means that we need to share in relational unity with God and therefore share relational unity with one another. In John 17, 20 through 23, Ephesians 3 and 4, the world is all about getting stuff. In Christ, it's all about loving and giving. These are very antithetical goals. You can't go and decide, you know what? I'm going to split the difference and I'm going to do both. You can't. You can't go in two directions at once, right? Anybody who is a parent knows that. You cannot go in two directions at once. You cannot go in the ways of the world and the ways of Christ at once because they're heading in very opposite directions and they're about very different things. And don't believe the lies your society tells you that will make you think that the two can be harmonized. The only way you can harmonize them is to move away from Christ and toward the ways of the world. Do you know how I know that? Have you seen the history of the Western world for the past 1,800 years? Every single time, the ways of Christ have been compromised to fit the ways of the world, to the hurt of the kingdom of God. So the Christian life is foolishness of the world because it finds no value in its methods. Think about it. How do you get ahead in the world? You put yourself forward. You aggressively pursue your goals, and you accomplish them, and then you are successful no matter what's happened to everybody around you, right? But God in Christ is about humility, service, weakness, and suffering in Matthew 16 to carry your cross and follow after him. The foolishness of the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1. This way of humility in Philippians 2. If you're not putting yourself out there because you understand that you're no better or worse than anybody else, you're not going to get ahead. Are you okay with that? You may not accomplish all your goals in life. Are you okay with that? Are you okay modeling these virtues that are going to mean you might lose jobs, that you might be seen as contemptible, and that may cause you physical pain? That's why Jesus encourages everybody to count the cost, because he's asking you to do the crazy mission. He's asking you to give up yourself and all that you are and all that you ever thought life should be about to do his will. And trust me, those virtues I mentioned are contemptible and foolish in the world. Humility? Give me a break. Really? Humility? 
Who's getting praise for their humility these days? Nobody. Who's getting ahead? People who say awful things and tweet a lot. Right? That's who's getting ahead these days. All right? Whatever grudging respect the world wants to give to the value of suffering, weakness, or humility uh, is undercut by the fact that the ways of the world undermine them at every opportunity. And in the end, it's because in the world, death is failure. Resurrection, ridiculous. Death is failure. If you doubt that, go try dying sometime in a hospital and see what they all do. They all act like you did something wrong. And they'll try to keep you alive as long as they can because death is failure. They didn't succeed. If they bring you back, well, yay, they're the hero doctor. If you, you know, do the natural thing, well, you know. Such a tragedy when people die. And I don't want to diminish the fact that death is not fun and it is painful and it is tragic in the divine drama of things. But it's not failure. There are worse things than dying. In the world, that's just a foolish thing. What's worse than dying? suffering I guess but there's something worse than suffering and dying now that makes no sense to the world that's nuts so why should we expect them to understand that or recognize that they won't the reason we spent so much time talking about Jesus' death and resurrection over the past couple weeks is because that's what makes everything different for the Christian because the world is going to look at that and think it's crazy. But that's the power of God to salvation. The powers and principalities of the world working, this is how it works, were broken by Jesus because Jesus didn't do it according to that way and God raised him from the dead. And God now has given him authority and power over all those systems. And those systems' time is short. And so they're fighting against uh, what's inevitably coming towards them. But in that fight, they keep fighting. We can only envision a new world, a new creation, a new hope because of Jesus' resurrection. We hold fast to the confidence that there is more to living than this life. We have no reason to fear death in 1 Corinthians 15 like we talked about last week. The powers of this present world have that, don't have that hope. They don't have that confidence. And so they deride and mock and cause grief to all who would follow after it. Do you know... Have you noticed that the people who least like the idea of judgment are the ones who have nothing to gain by the judgment? Right? The people who don't like the idea there's going to be a judgment on the final day are those who uh, uh, want to pretend that they don't think it's going to happen because the prospect of having to be called into account for the things they've done in this life is just too awful to contemplate. That's a very strong delusion that overpowers the world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 5. That's why everybody wants God to be, you know much more merciful than we have any real reason to believe or to imagine according to scripture. Because the other prospect is just too horrible to contemplate. Right? So, the whole point of this is, the world's going to think you're nuts if you're going to follow Jesus. The world may act like it's a great thing to follow Jesus to a certain extent, and they're okay with it as long as they're manipulating to their own purposes, right? What's the value of Christianity more? Well, if you're a Christian, you're probably a good person doing good things for people. Uh, you're a sucker, doing sucker things. 
And especially if you're calm and quiet over in the corner and not making a big fuss, then you're fine. But when you actually start believing this stuff and standing for radical love and patience and peace and, and resisting uh, the injustices of the world in a way that uh, glorifies God, all of a sudden now you're a threat to the system. And we know what happens to threats to the system, right? You have to eliminate them. You eliminate threats through coercion, through the power of persuasion, and when that fails, you kill it. If we are in Christ, that is what we've been called to. To glorify God. So, yeah, the Christian life is going to be crazy. So how are we going to do this? There's a really important thing to think about in Matthew 10, verse 16. You need to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And I point this out for a reason. We're in church, like I said, right? Good people, nice people. We all know we need to be holy right now, right? How tempting is a danger to code switch? The minute you turn off the church time, you know, you then become a worldly person because that's how you manage to live in the world. Code switching. Around Christians, I'm going to be a nice Christian person. And then out in the world, I'm going to be whatever I need to be to get ahead. It's a very strong temptation to do that. In that case, you're no longer as innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. You're as shrewd, as a, uh, shrewd, you're as shrewd and as innocent as a serpent. Okay? And if you're as shrewd and as innocent as a serpent, that's not really innocent, are you? And you're just going to get a really bad judgment. You don't want to stand before God as innocent as a serpent. Because of what use is a worldly Christian? Think about it. You have awful ideas you can't even practice right. Right? That's the whole problem. The Gentiles are blaspheming because of you, because you've got all these bad ideas that you'll yell at three corners, and then you don't even have the guts to live it. And I think that's a big problem in Christianity in our society is they see all the awful and none of the, none of the self-sacrifice. or They think it's just a bunch of hypocrisy. And are they wrong? Christ is going to spit such people out of their mouth, his mouth. But there's also the bubble. In L.A., we don't have as much of an issue with the bubble. There's not a big, you know, we have other bubbles we're dealing with. When it comes to that Christian holy huddle bubble, where, you know, it's very easy to get into a Christian subculture where all you're around is Christians and all that you ever engage with is somewhat Christian and you try to create this fiction of a Christian world on earth and you kind of become self-segregated. It seems real easy in that kind of self-segregation to uphold truth and against error, but you become as innocent and as shrewd as a dove. If you're as shrewd as a dove, of what good are you? You're hopelessly naive. And if a hopelessly naive, you see this, right? Good, innocent Christian boys and girls, they go to college. And what happens? The world steamrolls them. Why? Because they're as shrewd as a dove. Because that's the culture in which they've been raised. That's no way forward either. Because as much as we want to protect our children and protect one another, that's a noble impulse. Only God in the end can protect us. We need to handle that tension that Jesus has here. And the other problem of the bubble is all of a sudden you're deceived into justifying sinful attitudes and behaviors because you don't have a frame of reference to see how that could be wrong. And then you get some really odd ideas in churches, or odd ideas in those bubbles. And they can cause a lot of problems because now all of a sudden the world thinks you're crazy because you think you're doing all this great stuff and right things, but according to the standard of God and Christ, no, you've all deceived yourself. And so... Of what use is a Christian in that kind of bubble? They don't have a witness to the world except a posture that is hypocritical and bereft of love. I'm staying away from you 
It's very hard to love somebody when you're doing this to them the whole time, right? And that's what happens in the bubble, because you're now the world's the other. And in its own ways, that gives the nations reason to blaspheme, because you're either in my face yelling at me for doing bad things when you're hypocritical, or you are just so removed from me you want nothing to do with me. Both of those sound much more like the Pharisees than anything Jesus ever did. Now, if there's a Christian who's as shrewd as a dove and as innocent as a serpent, there is no hope for you. I'm sorry. If you get that flipped, that's just awful. That's just no hope there. I want to make that clear. But that's why we look at what Jesus says, and we've got to maintain that balance. We've got to know how the world works. I've never told you, don't understand worldly wisdom. Don't know how it works. You've got to know how it works. But don't follow that pattern. Be as shrewd as the serpent. You've got to know how this works, or you're just going to get eaten alive. But you've got to stay innocent as a dove. You've got to uphold what God has said in Christ, and to live it. So we need to know how it works. We cannot capitulate to that evil system. We can't manifest the love of God in Christ if we withdraw from the world, if we try to cover that light or leave others without hope. But we also can't manifest the love of God in Christ if we're just wallowing in sin and then pointing our finger at other people because, well, what Jesus said was just too hard. So we need to have that hum- humility to realize who we are, our easily ability to be tempted to know how things work but not to participate in them. And in the end, Revelation 13. That's a picture that John uses. It's such a powerful picture. you got that beast. And all the nations of the earth have capitulated the power of the beast. Who is like the beast? Who can stand up against the beast? They all worship the beast. They all use his image to, to transact things. Anybody who's outside of that system is not going to be able to make a living. They're going to be humiliated and rejected, and they're going to die. The whole system is designed to build up that beast. Who resists the beast? Christians. What happens to them? They get killed. And to the world, the beast in Revelation 13, that's just the way the world works. That's just how it goes. Oh, that beast died. Ooh, new beast. Oh, that beast is gone. That new beast. That's just how it works. It's how things are. But Christians gain the victory over the beast when they suffer and die. Because God will raise them up and will vindicate them on the final day. Because in the end, victory is defeat and defeat victory. In the end, those cleansed by the blood of the Lamb who held from the word of the testimony did not love their lives to death gained the victory, while those who compromised with the world system was lost. Again, let's emphasize that. Those who did not love their lives even to death, those who held fast to the word of the testimony and the blood of the Lamb found victory, but those who compromised with the world system were lost. Revelation is written the way it is, not just to make it funny or to cause people to think crazy things for 2,000 years, but because the Christian life is hard and that the temptation to compromise with the worldly system and to give in to worldly wisdom is a strong force that will overwhelm you if you do not stand firm. And the dangers of compromising with the world's way of doing things is extreme. Because all those who participated in the system of the beast suffered its plagues, suffered its death. And that is why John says in Revelation 14, this is the patience and faith of the saints. To resist. To stand firm. Because the forces of evil cannot stand the light of a Christian life. It will stop at nothing to suppress it, to persuade its constituents of the benefits of the dark side or its invincibility, or to try to extinguish it. And that is why we must not waver. We must not capitulate. 
We need to affirm everything that God has taught us in Christ, especially those things that are countercultural and counterintuitive, because it is hard. And we need to live like it. And to suffer, and to love, and to show patience, and to do all those things that God may be glorified. And as James says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace by those who are willing to suffer and not respond in kind. So let us embody that wisdom, recognize but reject the wisdom of the world, and live according to the pattern of the crucified and risen Christ. Thank you for your patience today. I hope this has been beneficial. If you need to become a Christian, I know that sounds like a great invitation, right? But that is the invitation, because the ways of this world are going to be over And what will you stand on the final day with if you've lived according to the ways of the world? You only obtain its condemnation. So please, come out of the world. Come out of the ways of the futility and despair. Come to Jesus. Believe he is a Christ, the Son of God. Confess that before us. Change your heart and mind to follow Jesus' ways. And be immersed in water in the name of Jesus. Forgive you of your sin. To obtain the hope of eternal life. That you can overcome all of the present evil in this world. Or if you're a Christian and you need the encouragement of your fellow Christians, please come to the front or fill out your response card as we stand.